And we're back. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Wildlife Keg and Cocktails. We've got episode 48 coming at you today and uh, very excited. We've been trying to line the show up for a while, so I'm very, very happy to have it happening uh, today. Um, our special guest is going to be Blanche Darnastasi, but uh, let's introduce a few, thing, few things on the table here. Um, uh, the end of June, um, it is going to be Negroni week. Um, thus, we are going to be drinking Negronis. Um, it's a fantastic cocktail um, originally from Florence, Italy in 1919 at the Cafe Cassoni when Count Camillo Negroni asked for something that was a bit more, had a bit more punch than the average Americano and his uh, bartender swapped out the soda water for gin, uh, pretty much probably doubling or maybe even tripling the alcohol by volume in this drink and threw in a slice of orange and thus the Negroni was born um, and it's been with us for now around 100 years and it's uh, definitely an amazing cocktail kind of balanced between uh you know bitter tangy sweet and uh super uh, herbal um aromatics um interesting drink um we also have a choc fudge salted caramel ocean cake let me get this right it's got whipped dark chocolate ganache edible glitter and sprinkles blue and white marble fondant swiss meringue buttercream um a salted caramel sauce uh which is uh, sandwiched between two layers of dark chocolate fudge cake um Awesome. Um, so um, I better get a little bit of that in because uh, it looks amazing, especially with this caramel. Mm. Wow. Mm. Okay. So salted caramel is one of my favorite things in the world, and this in particular. Oh my god. Oh my god. That's a <laughs> mind, that's a mind blowing cake. So. Together, pairing, uh -huh. oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think uh, having uh, this amazingly kind of rich, um, a little bit salty um, ocean cake, it actually pairs up really well with the Negroni because it's a powerful drink. So now you got like a, a powerful cake with an amazing salted caramel. Awesome. Well, let's get on to the show. We're going to be talking sea snakes with our uh, our guest for today. Uh, we have Blanche Danastasi, a marine biologist, a con applied conservation researcher, and a sea snake expert, currently finishing her PhD on genomics of threatened sea snakes at James Cook Uni's Australian Research Council Centre for Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. She's a member of the International Union, Union of Conservation of Nature Sea Snake Specialist Group, a contributor to the IUCN Global Status Review of Sawfish, a research partner of OceanWise Australia, and uh, also a wildlife carer as well, um, and uh, uh, many other things besides. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at SeasnakeBlanche uh, and on Instagram, and uh, you can also follow JCU on Twitter to check out uh, the James Cook Uni's uh goings about um and she's also one of the directors of the uh, deadly science getaway inspiring passion for science and leadership among young aboriginal and torres strait islander women through remote field science expeditions um for uh these uh, expeditions they actually won the 2017 lane beachley aim for the stars foundation award for the deadly science getaway to western australia you can check out deadly science on twitter at deadly underscore science on facebook at deadly science and uh just look for the hashtag deadly science getaway um she's here uh talking to us today about sea snakes uh with a negroni in hand um Blanche, how are you doing? Hi. So good to see you. Cheers. <laughs> and um, uh, we uh, also see that you're, uh, well, I, I basically stalked you down on Instagram. <laughs> um, I saw that you were um, at the Queensland Museum. Yeah, I've been um, playing with really, really special sea snake specimens at Queensland Museum for uh, 
a paper that we're writing about a snake we found somewhere where you don't usually see it. Yeah, wow. And um, I was lucky enough to have Patrick Cooper and Andrew Amy get out a bunch of special snakes like Hydrophus torquatus. And um, it was a real privilege. Yeah, fantastic. And, and how long have you been down here um, running around Queensland Museum? I got here on the 8th of July and I spent three days there counting sea snake scales on very old specimens. Wow, wow. And um, a bit of a range extension and uh, maybe even some some species changes there or is uh, uh, I, I'm sure it's all a bit under wraps. It's a bit secret squirrel because it's not my paper. It's um, <laughs> Andrew Davenport is the lead author, so okay. I'll let him um, tell his amazing story no problem you're you're just down here doing a bit of data collection and checking out some Uh museums oh that's 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 awesome um well look um i guess we uh should uh get to it i I do want to start with the deadly science getaway um that's such an amazing program first of all how did you get involved in it and how did it get started oh it's it's the most amazing story um Viv Doherty and Kathy Adams so working for James Cook University and the Queensland government were thinking about these amazing women who come from some of the remotest Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in Australia and they come and study in metropolitan and regional areas and we wanted a way to, you know, give them an extraordinary experience in the science field because it's not something they get exposed to and Pat and Kathy and Viv said, you know, why don't why don't we get them to Orpheus? Why don't we do that? And so they did the first one. Then I got... Um, so Orpheus being the... Orpheus, Orpheus Island, Island Research Station, which is um, led by James Cook University. So it's off the coast of uh, Cardwell and adjacent to the very um, famous island of Boogerman or Palm Island. And so I got asked to be the marine biologist on the trip and then... Um, the structure of JCU changed and um, I realised that my program might not continue. So I found my boss, John, and I said, John, uh, can I lead it? If I find the funding, can I lead it? And so we've kept it going and just from strength to strength. And um, we had our first young woman in university and she's currently studying nursing at James Cook University. And it was came from sitting on a beach at sunset um, chatting about what our dreams are That's and, amazing. um, yeah, it's That's... pretty, yeah, it's pretty special. It's like two days in wild remote places with really authentic conversations, just really, really down to earth. And, um, sometimes it just helps these women just find the spark to do what they really want to do. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think uh, aside from just uh, giving them that opportunity that might not be there necessarily to experience some of this stuff. I, 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 I guess as well, not just women, but Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are fairly well underrepresented in the academic fields. So First Nations people bring with them knowledge that's been passed into them through the generations. And as scientists, there's so many questions to be asked, but the answers are already known. And so, you know, it's really crucial that we don't just... Um, partner with First Nations people that we start elevating them into the leadership roles because they really understand these wild places better than anyone could because it's their their land and sea country. Absolutely. And uh, seeing those leadership roles and, and getting mentored into them is, is obviously so important. And uh, just like we spoke with Georgia ward Fear on one of our recent shows, uh, without um, the traditional ecological knowledge, um, they would have been spotting 
only bold lizards and ones that didn't respond well to their conservation training. So having um, that traditional uh, ecological expertise really is what one of the key points that made their conservation program work, right? So this 60 to 80,000 or maybe more um, of uh, uh, Indigenous history in Australia is, is a huge um, wealth of knowledge that we'd be kind of very remiss to, to pass up, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we're so excited because um, with support from the Waldy family, we're going to run the Orpheus Island Daily Science Getaway on the East Coast, but we're also going to go to Guduruguru on the West Coast or Shark Bay with my very amazing co-pilot, Morgan, a woman, Bianca McNear, and uh, we're, we're going to be out doing turtle tagging with um, women from across the generations, just connecting with each other and connecting with country and sharing this really extraordinary cultural, ecological ecological knowledge and it's all I'm a little bit humbled that's absolutely incredible that you uh, you know first of all the collaboration but going out to Shark Bay um doing something that for them you know uh, for us you know getting out and tagging turtles is, is obviously you know part of the science but for them you know it's part of their lifestyle and history for for so long that oh my god it's going to be uh just uh, I, I really can't imagine what it's going to be like, but you know, uh, obviously Shark Bay as well. Um, not not too bad a bad of an area for some sea snakes as well. <gasps> yeah. So there's a good chance that you guys might uh, come across a, a few of your animals. Um, yes. While uh, while out there looking for turtles. So Shark Bay has been this unexpected treasure trove for sea snakes. So I went there in 2014, just off the coast of Monkey Maya with the Shark Bay Ecosystem Research Team. Um, but horrifyingly, a heat wave in 2010 took out um, almost half of the largest seagrass meadow on earth and the sea snakes went with it. They crashed by nearly 80%. Those coastal shallows, you know, obviously um, they heat up a lot faster when, um, you know, there's uh, temperature changes. Yeah, but I mean, during that heat wave, it even reached the deep water corals, not as badly, but it's still, it just, it, you know, nothing wasn't affected because even if you were deep, you were still sitting a little bit above baseline. Yeah. And so... Um, we were having trouble finding sea snakes and then I talked to local people. So you were in the Shark Bay area? Yeah, so I talked to no locals and got some knowledge about where to go and, um, yeah, there they were. I, I found um, Shark Bay sea snakes, um, Apisurus levis puliorum, and um, this other species, Hydrophus major, the olive-headed sea snake. And so I spent a lot of time swimming around Shark Bay on snorkel and also hanging off the back of a boat on a rope, counting and catching sea snakes. <laughs> and yeah. oh, the other thing that happened was I was on a trawl vessel with the WA government doing pre-season surveys and I was throwing up everywhere and um, the first sea snake of my PhD came on board and it was an extinct species. What? So it was um, – and I was kind of like throwing up and then like getting myself together so I could process this snake. And then when I went through the photos and, and drew out the scales, I realised it was a leaf-scaled sea snake, something that we thought was extinct because sea snakes went extinct – at this place called Ashmore Reef off the coast of Western Australia and that was the global biodiversity hotspot and there was two species only known from there including the leaf-scared sea snake 
And so there I am on a troll vessel, <laughs> 2,000 kilometers south, and this little brown snake came on board and it was an extinct species. So um, it was a major range extension and the rediscovery of an extinct species. And then my ranger friend, Grant Griffin, up at Exmouth, was out on a routine um, patrol and took snapped some photos of two little sea snakes and sent them to me and says, who's this? And it was the other extinct species. It was the short nose sea snake. And like they were they were getting sexy. Like the little boy was nipping at her <laughs> neck and there was like an extinct species of sea snake making babies. So there's obviously, hopefully at least, a, a breeding population somewhere. Yeah, there is. So now we know that we have coastal populations of these two species. And and even more exciting than that, even though these two species are extinct out at Ashmore Reef, way offshore, um, some work from the Sanders Lab shows that the coastal ones are actually different enough that may, they might be their own species distinct from the ones that we lost from Ashmore. What? But we'll never really know because they're gone from Ashmore yeah. forever. But we do have a second chance in coastal Western Australia to conserve these animals. Wow, that's uh, that's unfortunate that, uh, you know, if it is a, a unique species, obviously it sucks that, that, that it, it has been lost. But uh, knowing that the one on uh, the coastline might be something unique is also uh, fairly fascinating. I understand they disappeared from um, so that's uh, the leaf-scaled Apicurus uh, foliosquama and the short-nosed sea snake um, uh, Apicurus aprefrontalis, um, and they both disappeared from the Ashmore and Hibernia reefs in the Timor Sea in two thousand and two. Yeah, right. And, and, um, and as did all sea snakes from that location. So sea snakes used to be super abundant there. You could easily find, you know, 30 snakes a day. But by 2012, they're just gone and we've only found like one or two yeah. there since they're, they're no longer able to breed or maintain a population. They're just gone and we, and we don't know why. It's one of, you know, the most enigmatic mysteries that we've ever come across it is it is the big mystery in uh, in sea snakes at the moment isn't it what happened to the ashmore ashmore reef um, yeah population? so you know they started declining in about the 1960s and the declines intensified in about 1995 and no one impact really explains the beginning or the end of the decline so you know there's been coral bleaching out there there's been seismic testing there's been oil spills um there's been artisanal fishing out there but nothing ex explains the beginning and the end and so um we're trying to get at that with remote sensing techniques but the truth is we may never know yeah but we what we do need to do now is hone in on coastal Western Australia, which is a global biodiversity hotspot in its own right, and start figuring out what the drivers of sea snake abundance is and how we can stabilise and look after populations as best as we can so that when heat waves come along and take out seagrass beds and coral reefs on a big scale, the sea snakes populations have the maximum resilience available to cope with, you know, the water being too hot or whatever the impact is that's happening to them and their food source and their habitat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, uh, particularly, I guess, with the grass flat species like uh, the newly discovered Foliosquama, um, well, first of all, we're not going to know too much about it being fairly recent, right? We're not going to know where its population starts and ends. We're not going to know its population sizes. And um, we're not going to know exactly how it uses that space either. Yeah. And so that's something cool about the Apicurus folia squama story from Shark Bay. Um, 
the only data we have on, you know, this this coastal population has actually come from collaborating with government and the fishing industry. And so it just really highlights the extreme value and need for people to collaborate. Even more recently, in collaboration with INPEX, they had remote operated vehicles down on the seafloor at like 250 metres deep and there was a sea snake. So so I, I, is that the uh, Crow Riddell paper yeah, that just came out? Yeah. And so, I mean, it's just so super cool because, you know, a collaboration between science and industry and citizen science actually brought this incredible record um, to our attention. And, yeah, Jenna led this paper showing that, you know, this is the first time sea snakes have ever been found at 250 metres. So, uh, yeah, I understand. So they're in the mesopelagic zone. And they're the twilight zone. Yeah, uh, really getting down into the depths. Um, and until then, um, the deepest that seasonics had been. Uh, yeah, it was about one hundred and thirty something. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So at, at least, at least seventy, maybe even close to like an extra hundred meters of depth that we now know that these animals can swim to and survive at, and maybe even. I mean, they were obviously doing something down there. Maybe hunting. Maybe thermoregulating something. Yeah. Um. Well, it actually looked like they were hunting. Like investigating um little holes in the seafloor which is kind of so th- this this snake we actually not even sure which species it is it was you know down there so the hydroph we know it's a hydrophus lineage snake and they have many of them have um evolved to have these tiny little heads that are specialized for sticking in fish and eel burrows and so we think that's what the snake was doing um because it has like a a massive back half and a tiny little head and it's going along investigating these little holes it's interesting to think of uh those uh i I think they refer to as microcephalic um, sea snakes, right? We, we kind of, uh, it would be fairly easy to lump sea snakes into one group of organisms and, and be like, oh, they're all, they're all fairly similar, but there's, uh, pelagic drifters that have some, like the, the yellow bellied sea snake has one of the largest distributions of any vertebrate in the world. And then you have these little microcephalic things, which have shrunk down and they have tiny little heads for sticking into coral, coral, coral crevices, and they don't really move particularly far. That's a huge breadth of diversity in behavior. Yeah. And then you got turtle headed sea snakes, which have fused the top scales along their top lip. They don't eat anything other than fish eggs. And they use that, that scale that it's a long scale. So it looks like the kind of like a turtle's face and it uses that long scale to scrape fish eggs off of um off of rocks yeah yeah a little caveat eater yeah and they're like extremely side attached um they don't even move a kilometer in oh. their life they're that side attached so and they're homebodies yeah, yeah and and they think they're homebodies because they they need to know what their local fish population is doing and they need to know where their local fish are laying their eggs so they can go and steal them yeah right and fantastic little animals and obviously being a being a caveat they've been doing that for a while they they've got that um adapted lip for scraping the eggs off their venom glands have completely reduced and recessed they've um they've got stop codons popping up here and there wherever they've got venom genes just completely cutting off the transcription of any kind of venom proteins uh well to a to a large degree i i, I suppose um yeah fascinating little animal that's obviously spent a lot of time adapting to you know eating uh, caviar yeah and then you've got like big old olive sea snakes apicerus levis levis and they're just kind of like oh, i'll eat whatever so they eat crabs and fish and sometimes squid maybe even prawns 
Yes. So really general and very robust and, friend- well, we call it friendly, but I think when sea snakes swim straight up to your dive mast, so they're actually investigating whether you're a predator and seeing what you do. And if you don't do much, they're like, okay, I'll just investigate you some more or I'll swim off and keep doing what I'm doing. So it's a little bit of uh, curiosity as well. Curiosity and a bit of a threat assessment, yeah, I reckon. Yeah, a bit of an anti-predator maybe. Yeah, yeah but yeah. the thing is they're, they're more scared of you and that's why they need to check out if you're going to try and eat them. And so... I just kind of say to scope people, you out a little bit. yeah, I just kind of say to people, leave, leave them alone and they'll leave you alone. And um, they do have big fixed front fangs and a lovely flip top head um, because they have to eat fish. So they have to eat, open their mouth to eat fish. But um, yeah, they just don't like to bite things other than prey. No, I mean, I mean, nor, nor do, nor do our uh, terrestrial uh, venomous snakes. Yeah. I mean, yeah so as as like, you say, if, if they're left alone, they, they give you the same courtesy. Yeah. All right, guys. Um, well, now, those two papers, by the way, uh, Crow, Riddell, et al., 2019, first records of sea snakes diving to the mesopelagic zone above 200 metres. That's in Austral Ecology, available now. Um, and uh, the uh, Ashmore and Hibernia Reef sea snakes, um, you can read that in Dana Stasi et al., 2016, new range and habitat records for Australian sea snakes, raise challenges for conservation in biological conservation, uh, I believe, 194. Uh, and for that, you guys spent over 200 hours surveying. Yeah, so that was a lot of work. There was a lot of time hanging off the back of a boat and snorkeling, and and manta manta surveys as well. I was I was told so fun. (laughs) It's pretty hard work. Can you describe that to uh, to our audience who might not know what that is? So I had the great privilege of going to a highly protected zone um, where the oldest oldest form of life on Earth lives. They're called stromatolites. They get called living rocks sometimes. They're the thing that made the oxygen in our atmosphere. So they're these amazing uh, Western Australian beachy cyanobacteria fossil boulders. Yeah, and, and they live in this really salty pool called Hamlin Pool. And it turns out, so normal seawater is 35 parts per thousand salinity. Hamlin is up to nine. 90 parts per thousand salinity. And it's really hard to duck under the water because it's so buoyant in the salt. Yeah. And sea snakes live there in in incredible abundance. And um, the salty pool with the stromatolites and the sea snakes, it was actually really cold when I was there. It was like 19 degrees. And so the the most effective way to look for sea snakes is to take like the a ski bar that you use to hold onto when you're skiing and you put the ski bar in the water and you hook your elbows onto the bar and hold onto the rope and you get towed to the through the water and you scan from side to side and when you see a sea snake you drop off swim down sort of have a a very specific way of catching them that's gentle for the snake and safe for me um, because we have to be gentle with them because they're quite fragile. But, yeah, when you're getting towed through the water for hours on end and the water's only like 19 degrees, <laughs> it's like having refrigerated water running through your wetsuit. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, lot of manta survey and a whole lot of effort going into into that whole whole paper. Was it just yeah, you or did you have of, a lot of other people out there with you? Um. I had really amazing teams. I I worked with Florida International University who put me on their boats, Um, Western Australian Department of Fisheries, worked with WA um, Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions. Amazing. And also the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And um, it was just amazing. Everyone was so warm and collaborative and people were um, wonderful when they – you know, became part of my team. It was just so easy to work with so many wonderful people. 
That's awesome. Um, well, look, let's uh, wind it back um, for our audience um, of uh, who, who may not be quite as uh, up on everything sea snake as we might be. And uh, let's bring it back to a bit of basics about sea snakes, um, if you don't mind. Um, so obviously um, they are, as you mentioned, a fixed front fanged snake in the family Olapidae. Are they still in the subfamily Hydrophenae or...? Where are, where are they sitting at the moment? Do we know? Either way, they are one of the most fully aquatic vertebrates uh, that there is. Um, while the uh, Lorticota uh, of the uh, sea crate genus um, do spend a bit of time on land. Yeah, so there's been um, – marine snakes have invaded the aquatic realm multiple times. And so hydrophene sea snakes or true sea snakes, the ones that we have in Australia, they come – from a live-bearing ancestor. And so the cool thing about almost all of Australia's sea snakes is that they've completely cut their ties with the land because when they give birth, their little babies can just swim up and take a breath. And this is a total opposite of laticorded or sea crates because um, sea crates still lay eggs. And so they come on land or they go into caves to lay their eggs and they also come on land to bask. And they also go on these amazingly long foraging expeditions, like they'll travel 40 kilometres in a single foraging expedition and they usually specialise in eels. So they can be used as indicators of ecosystem health because you can have a look at, at how the eels are doing by looking at what the sea crates are eating. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, and I understand as well that they arose uh, fairly independently then, um, you know, obviously oviparous um, uh, ancestors for the true hydrophenes um, and uh, uh, oviviviparous, um, which is, I guess, uh, not quite viviparous, right on the borderline. <laughs> yeah, it's like, because um, sometimes, um, so I have amazing collaborators in the Australian trawl fleet, particularly in the northern prawn fishery, and um, they've provided me with a lot of tissues from live snakes. And when um, sea snakes die, they provide me with the specimen so I can have a look at um, pregnant females. And when you when you look at um, inside the belly of a pregnant female, you can see each little um, sea snake encased in its own individual egg within her, but then they hatch inside and, and then are born yeah. live. Yeah, just like a lot of our red belly black snakes and tiger snakes and yeah. things like that. But yeah, wonderful. Um, so obviously um, the uh, crates uh, arose from an early Australian elapid ancestor that was uh, probably you know more of a egg layer, but they are convergent with... Um, True sea snakes. So they do share a lot of those similar features, such as um, uh, you know uh, laterally compressed tail, uh, nostril valves, elongated lungs, um, a occasionally devascularized posterior air tank in the lung. Um, how much skin respiration are, are, are crates capable? I know the the hydrophenes are uh, the true sea snakes, if we're, we're going to call them that. They they are actually capable of absorbing some oxygen through their skin. Yeah, about twenty percent. Wow. And I don't know what the value is for secrets. Right. So um, Vinay Udyor did some fabulous respirometry work and confirmed the earlier work saying that it's about 20%, which is just so cool. Not only do they have a giant lung spanning like, you know, one entire side of their body nearly, they can get their oxygen through their skin a bit like a frog. It's amazing. Yeah, what an adaptation to living in water, right? I mean, um, uh, it's not quite the level of like uh, the turtles that can breathe water from their bum, but uh, that's still pretty impressive. You know, 25% of their oxygen requirements coming just from their skin surface. Yeah. And it kind of raises questions about this sea snake that we found, you know, diving down in the twilight zone. And um, we're like, how does it, you know, 
keep oxygen for those really long, deep dives? And um, how does it cope with the immense pressure that it experiences at that depth? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, it's questions that we need to look at um, because ultimately it will all impact how we manage and conserve sea snakes in the future. Well, yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, they seem to be quite delicate animals, which is not something that you'd at first consider from snakes, but uh, these snakes in particular, I mean, they spend most of their life with their body weight supported by water buoyancy. So they, I can imagine that they're probably not quite as uh, robustly put together as some of our hardcore lander leopards. They're extraordinarily fragile compared to lander leopards. And so I had to be really, really strict with my team about um, how to handle them because there was a huge risk that they would harm a snake if they were too rough. So they go, went through a really strict training protocol and also um, – try to upskill the wildlife rescue community because after storms we get increased incidences of sea snake strandings on our beaches. We've been seeing quite a lot in southeast Queensland in recent years after storms and I try to explain to wildlife carers that they need to treat every sea snake as though it could have a spinal injury and so support its entire body. You must never tail it. Yeah, right. And also um, uh, this was uh, interesting to hear as well that you don't transport them in water. Yeah, because when you've got sea snakes stranded, they've, they're often stranding themselves because there's something wrong and they're probably afraid of drowning. So putting them back into the sea isn't a good idea either. The best thing is just to call a professional handler or a wildlife rescuer and then they're, they're on the beach because there's something wrong, they're struggling. And if you then put them in a container of water to travel and you slam the brakes on, you're probably going to drown them and that and that does happen so you must just transport them in wet towels in a secure container because they are highly venomous and they do have a flipped up head and fixed front fangs and they and they do still need to breathe oxygen so yeah being tossed around haphazardly in a tank of water um when you're completely exhausted and can barely lift your head up yeah and so even when we catch sea snakes in the wild i just take a little tissue sample from their tail so I can then go and do their family trees with DNA. But when we put them back in the ocean, we very carefully lower them into the sea and we wait till they can see that they've closed their nostril valves so that we know that they know they're back in the water and won't um, get a lung full of uh, water and, you know, a respiratory infection. Yeah, wow. So, all right, yeah, yeah. important note for uh, wildlife carers, um, do not tail. <laughs> a lot of, uh, you know, tailing is obviously picking up a venomous yeah. snake by the by the, by the the tail. Again, even that's probably a bad term. You don't want to pick up snakes by the tip of the tail. You want to be a little bit further down because, uh, yeah, the, there's a lot of reproductive organs in that delicate little tail. And it's not exactly a strong structure. You kind of want to grab them more by the body yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and um, there's a tendency to want to headpin sea snakes too, but they're they're really fragile and they bruise so severely. They come out black and blue the next day after headpinning. So, um, if you don't need to, just don't, or you know, find an expert um, veterinarian who knows a bit about sea snakes, and they are around. Um, Dr. Amber Gillett comes to mind and they'll know how to handle them and do that kind of more detailed stuff without having to headpin them if you don't need to. But failing all that, support the whole body transport them in a wet towel in a, in a container. Don't let them shuffle around in there yep, too much. And probably the first um, action you should do is to, once you've got them um, somewhere settled, put a thin layer of fresh water into the bottom of their container because they're often severely dehydrated and they can um, rehydrate through that process of being sit in fresh water. Yeah, that, that was uh, that was also an interesting to hear that a lot of these animals are going to be dehydrated. They're 
but they are sea animals, but you know, they are a vertebrate. They, they need fresh water to drink. And you can simply, once they're somewhere safe and secure and not being jostled around in a vehicle, you can pretty much just put them in a bucket of fresh water and they'll absorb but, something. But and not drink too it. deep because they might still drown. So you've got to have to do a little assessment about how competent they are to keep their head out of the water. Right, they, right. Yeah, they might not be able to. So you give them some nice rocks and things to support their head on. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Just to make sure that they can, uh, yeah, keep their head above the bathtub. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, fantastic. Um, well, I guess we should talk about some of um, uh, their threats and conservation, um, particularly with some of these uh, newer uh, species, the uh, Foliosoma, uh, I'm saying that wrong, uh, <laughs> Aprofrontalis, uh, Foliosquama, Foliosquama, Foliquasoma, Foliosquama. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll get it right one day. Um, obviously, when you're discovering something um, so new, the population is going to be fairly small. Uh, I mean, there's a chance, you know, that, you know, if it hasn't been discovered yet, that it might be for a reason because there's just not that many of them. Yeah. So um, I, th I think there's about another 20 to come. We estimated in a big um, global collaborative paper that we wrote about future directions in marine research. Yeah. And WA is probably going to have even more special species. Yeah, wow. So it's going to be broken up when the uh, genetics are looked at a little bit, do you well, suspect? We'll see, you know, like it's um, – we'll put it all together, put the genetics and the morphology together and – Everything's got these cryptic species hidden that, that, you know, that look like one species but when you actually do the work it ends up being – Often, yeah. often so many. There was a, uh, the Gairaduvia complex is, is a perfect example. I think there's like 48 of them now that it was originally maybe one, two, maybe three species uh, just being split into, I think 48 it was. Yeah. And so even when you look at um, sea snakes, the same species from the east and the west coast, sometimes they just look really different. I looked at um, a Dubois sea snake from the east coast the other day and I've spent quite a lot of time with um, Abyssurus Duboisi from the west coast and looking at this east coast thing, it's just totally different. It's got tiny pokey little eyes and kind of different looking scales. So, yeah, and the genetics show that they're a little bit different. So in future years um, there'll be a lot of collaborations to pull all that genetic and morphological data. And see how, how significant the difference really is. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, well, look, when uh, you do have these uh, small and, uh, I guess, rare animals, um, there's going to be some some issues with conservation, and a lot of the time, you know, direct human collection isn't going to be an issue. But with small population sizes, it really can be. Um, that doesn't seem to be a huge issue here in Australia. I know there are um, Southeast Asian sea snake markets. Um, what uh, and obviously there is going to be you know people trying to collect for those. Um, but Australia doesn't have a huge market for its uh, here. Yeah, as, so as sea I snakes are totally protected. Like yeah. it's entirely illegal um, to sell or buy um, a sea snake product in Australia, um, which is a great thing. They even formally investigated whether we could harvest sea snakes as a fishery. And I'm really glad that the conclusion was that it wasn't a good idea because they don't have that many babies like elegant sea snakes, Hydrophus elegans and olive sea snakes, Apisurus levis levis. They only have like sort of two to 13 babies every two years. Wow. So they don't have many babies And, the, at and all. these are the, uh, some of our more common species. Yeah. And so like, and sometimes fishers tell me that like certain types of sea snakes, they don't see them over a certain size anymore. And that's a real red flag in any fishery species when they're starting to get smaller and smaller, you know, that the population is not doing very well. Yeah. The top end of the uh, size yeah, is getting headhunted. So even though we don't directly harvest them, um, we do 
um, lose a lot of sea snakes to trawl because they end up in this big net and they get envenomed by fish spines and they drown. And even though a lot of sea snakes go back alive, um, some people held some sea snakes on on a boat to see how long they survived and about 40% of them died within seven days. Oh, wow. So um, we really have a bit of work to do in the trawl space around sea snakes. They're something that we haven't considered very well in management to date and it's an emerging issue. There's ways that you can configure your trawl net to um, massively decrease your sea snake catch in areas where you're getting a lot of them. Um, and we need to look at what trawl fisheries around Australia we can implement them to help cut down our impacts. And plus, trawling takes out a lot. It damages habitat quite seriously, right, yeah. it's, you know, especially fragile habitats like seagrass yeah. and coral reefs. Impacts on more than one species than just sea snake as well. Yeah, obviously. absolutely. Yeah, right. Um, interesting though. Um, obviously, um, the fisheries bycatch is going to be a huge issue being how delicate these animals are and the fact that they do need to get up and breathe. Um, being trapped in the bottom of a net with a, with a bunch of uh, struggling animals on top of you is not going to um, be conducive to that. Yeah, yeah. You're going to be like um, struggling to, to cope after you've been squashed and stabbed and envenomed and near drowned yeah right but look uh, i i guess um one of the things here is uh that was one of the considerations for ashmore as well is that with those reefs and uh some of those deep bottoms and just uh they're not great trawling grounds so at least some of those reef species are going to be maybe a little bit less susceptible to the impacts, but those grass beds and coastal species. And see that, but that's one of the hard things. Even if um, they're species that aren't exposed to fishing pressure, those habitats and ecosystems are now starting to feel the full force of climate change where we're getting unprecedented <gasps> heat waves and they're they're severe and they're hot and um so these everything's hotter than it's ever been and if they if an animal doesn't fry in its own right in those conditions it's possible that its prey source or its critical seagrass habitat fries in those conditions and then they don't have a home or they don't have prey yeah so they can't just they're not like us they can't just turn on the air conditioner and go to the supermarket they're out in the wild ocean yeah and the and you you're absolutely right populations decline when that happens yeah you're, and you're absolutely right that other than just, I guess, um, the ability to withstand heat, there's going to be the subsequent changes in prey abundance and suitable resources of, of all types, rather not just the temperature that they're able to or feel comfortable at. Um, is there going to be enough resources for there to be a viable breeding population? Is, yeah. going to, is going to be something that can change quite rapidly, I imagine, in those shallow waters? Yeah, so in like in Guthurugudu or Shark Bay, um Jordy Thompson and his team, they, they figured out that like heaps of seagrass was lost and that clear water, beautiful, pristine, clear water seagrass meadows kind of turned into muddy wastelands. Yeah. And, and I meant to toad through those wastelands and I, I didn't know them before the heat wave, but Jordy told me how different it was. And in Shark Bay, there's this massive fleshy seagrass called amphibolus and it's like a meter high. And you don't have so much coral in the in the lower reaches of Shark Bay. You've got seagrass. It's the main habitat forming organism and everything lives in it, hides in it, sleeps in it, uh, breathes in it. And if the, the sea snakes even hide from tiger sharks in it at high tide. And then 40% of that seagrass was lost. Yeah, and wow. so they had no habitat anymore. That's and incredible. It's And it's like, it, it's an absolute horrible tragedy, but if you ask me how could I help sea snakes, I would say 
support a transition to a renewable energy economy as soon as we possibly can and reduce reduce the rate at which we're warming the climate. That's the most important thing we can do. And then we've got to look after our coastlines properly. We need to um, not just develop all the coastline and pollute it with, you know, industrial and urban pollution. We've got to do a bit better and keep our close coastlines clean. We've got to keep good environmental flows because um, of water into the coastal environment because um, it turns out that female sea snakes go into our creeks and river mouths to drop their babies. Like a lot of uh, marine eels as well, obviously yeah. swimming up up almost into yeah. fresh water. a little bit different. So um, Vinay Udyur found out that elegant and bind-bellied sea snakes hang out within about four to eight kilometres of, of fresh water sources. It's actually really important for them. Yeah, well. So when we're kind of taking away fresh water for irrigation. Or changing uh, rainfall regimes. Yeah, like we're actually affecting the ability of these little baby sea snakes to survive. Yeah. And also, I, I guess I was just thinking as well, this doesn't just affect the coastal populations because of things like coral bleaching. So coral bleaching, which occurs at, at higher uh, temperatures, higher ocean temperatures, is obviously going to reduce habitat for sea snakes as well. Yeah. Um, so both the corals and the seagrass beds and the coastal areas, um, all of it is, is, I guess, essential. Yeah. And so previously with coral bleachings, it's been like a, a point event and then the corals recover and then they start making babies again. But for the first ever time in history, we had back-to-back two years in a row global coral bleaching events and that means that they're going to struggle to produce babies for years after so and and there was mass coral death the coral death was kind of like rotting off the coral skeletons that happened so fast and so it's going to be hard to have babies to replace those corals if the corals have been fried. We are seeing signs of hope, though. We are seeing that some coral reefs can recover. So if we start acting now to stop warming the climate, we stand a chance to give as much resilience to our ecosystems and reefs and sea snakes as we possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. There is still time to act, but, you know, that time is you know fast passing, so we better yeah. get on to it, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, look, I, uh, I guess uh, we're going to have to move on to new research and then uh, close up sh- uh, shop very shortly. But before we do, I guess um, solutions for sea snakes regarding conservation, I guess uh, just on, uh, I guess, trawling. Is there uh, is there any particular trawling tech that seems to be less damaging or uh, is that something that um, needs a bit more research? You really need to get involved with the fishes in each individual location because the habitat's really different. Like the trawling seagrass habitat on in Guthuruguru on the West Coast is entirely different to, you know, picking for tiger prawns throughout the Gulf of Carpentaria. Right. And um, the, the solutions will be different in each location. There is some promising signs that if you set the net up in a certain way, if you put your square mesh cot end in a certain position at, to reduce or to allow the opportunity for bycatch to escape, and if you put your little your little escape hatches, your bycatch reduction devices, just in like a, the turtle exclusion yeah, devices, yeah, yeah. If you put them in a specific location, you can drop out your sea snake bycatch a lot. And then we also need to look at, you know, where and when the the major impacts on sea snakes are happening. Right. So obviously, um, our seagrass beds and coastal habitats. Um, a lot more protection for them as well, right? Yeah, and 
protection meaning not just on the water protection but protection and how we develop the land right by them you know every time we fill in the sea to make land for luxury housing estates we're probably taking away critical sea snake and baby dolphin feeding habitat um, every time we divert water for um, for agriculture or for urban population use, we're taking away like the literally the the essential key to life for these animals. We're taking away their water source. So we've got to think about those things. Um, stop clearing the land so much because when it rains it washes all the sediment into the ocean and that coats the seagrass and the corals and then they have they have trouble growing and that's the foundation habitat for so many species from sea snakes to dugongs obviously nice clear water lets the sunlight through so things can photosynthesize very very important yeah yeah um and ultimately that that transition to a low carbon renewable economy Uh, absolutely obviously the number one thing um climate change, uh, I guess, uh, management and um, fossil fuel reduction into the future um, going to be something that we really need to be pushing towards on all fronts. And on top of the things that everyone should be doing, like uh, recycling, using less plastic, um, making sure you reduce your energy use in your home carpool if you can. Yeah, yeah. So, look, there's plenty of ways that we can all help be part of the solution. But, again, the main thing is... Um, climate change. Yeah, climate change. And individual actions are one thing, but getting getting an overall change to a yeah. renewable energy uh, economy yeah. and community is, is, is the, the larger and more important part. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, look, let's jump on to new research for, uh, for a little bit before we close up here. Um, moving straight into um, our first for the day. We've got Lily White et al. from 2019 in PLOS 1, uh, issue 14, um, number 2. Uh, drinking by sea snakes from oceanic freshwater lenses at first rainfall ending seasonal drought. Fantastic stuff. So we spoke about um, uh, sea snakes um, acquiring uh, freshwater, um, which is problematic in a marine environment. Um, how uh, marine vertebrates uh, respond to oceanic rainfall and uh, general drinking responses after after drought in vertebrates is uh, a little bit limited. Um, but uh, this is a fantastic paper studying um, Hydrophus uh, platurus, the only pelagic squamate uh, pretty much across the Indo-Pacific Oceans and one of the largest distributions of any vertebrate. So this is the yellow-bellied sea snake, correct? Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Um, and they, I, I hear they range from sort of an indigo, purpley, bluey on top to a uh, always with that really bright yellow bottom, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen a lot of these uh, personally? Um, I have only seen dead specimens yeah, of these guys. Well, I would love to see a live one. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, um, they do range over a large area, but they seem to be a bit more common in uh, Golfo Dulce in Costa Rica, mm-hmm. which is where the study took place in 2017, where there's a local population. Um, and uh, the authors observed their drinking behavior at the dry, wet season transition um, at the first ocean rainfall after six months of drought. They basically collected 99 uh, yellow-bellied sea snakes over eight mornings, brought them to the lab, weighed them, threw them in a freshwater tub, observed them for an hour, and held them for another 20 hours and reweighed them to see how much change in volume there had been. And lo and behold, uh, the percentage of freshwater uh, in uh, in the lab uh, samples went down um, by 80% to 13% after rainfall. So uh, bringing them in before rainfall, 80% of them are going to drink. After rainfall, only 13% of them are going to drink. So it seems that the percentage 
Drinking immediately following capture shows significant linear decline with continued early rains. Progressive decline in the percentage of thirsty snakes suggests drinking from freshwater lenses lenses associated with the first rainfall of the wet season. Fascinating. Yeah. Have you seen sea snakes drinking in the wild? Ah, so I was so privileged. There was uh, a spine-bellied sea snake, a Hydrophus curtis in care, and it was kind of like a puppy. It would wake up every morning and drink from its fresh water bowl that was set <laughs> just above the saltwater height. Right, right. So this is obviously like, um, you know, I've, I've done a few turtle rehabs where you've got some things that are kind of plastered together and you're kind of keeping them in a human environment, but you don't want them in water. So they do actually have to have a water dish that they can drink yeah, from specifically. yeah. yeah. And they do drink. So, yeah. And um, that must be fascinating to see such a marine adapted organism. It's amazing. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of amazing these holy marine snakes that live in the ocean, but they do have to drink fresh water and they're pretty creative about it. So, yeah, they they dehydrate over a really long time, like over months. But obviously, leading into wet season, especially if there's been a drought, they're like super thirsty. And so, what this um, amazing paper shows is that they like they go for broke. They drink, 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 drink to kind of get that water back into their tissues so that they can then, you know, hold themselves over until the next rainfall period. They So, they also so they drink water off of the freshwater lens that sits on the surface of the water because salt water is a bit heavier than freshwater and it just sits on the surface. So they poke their little head up into that surface layer and drink. Um, I also suspect they might drink from freshwater springs that pe- bounce up from, you know, under the water. So Right. Yeah, so there's some spots in Hamlin Pool where sea snakes are – that's the salty pool with the stromatolites. Right. Uh, where the sea snakes are pretty common and usually you see little freshwater springs pushing up uh. fresh water under there. Um, I've also heard that they open their mouth up when it's raining and just drink really straight up rain. rainwater. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Oh, wow. That would be something to see if you see snake heads sticking out of the ocean trying to catch raindrops. Yeah, and so sea crates are a little bit different. They're in- amphibious. Lawn mowing is a threat to s- to see crates because they come up when there's not much water going on. They they drink the droplets off of the coastal grass. And so right. when you mow it all down, they lose there's access to There's nothing for to- that dew to catch on for them to drink. Wow. So sea crates are known for drinking dew off, off coastal beach grasses. Yep. Wow. That would be something to see. <laughs> wow. Fascinating paper anyway. Well, moving on. Uh, on to number two, we've got Sherrett, Rasmussen and Sanders from 2018. Trophic spe- uh, specialization drives morphological evolution in sea snakes. Now, we um, we spoke about this just a little bit. Um, so viv- viviparous sea snakes, um, that's the uh, ones that we're generally talking about, um, the live bearers, uh, are one of the most rapidly speciating reptiles. A, a, a radiation for um, uh, people who don't know, an evolutionary radiation is when you've got one lineage that suddenly seems to split up into a lot of new species over a very short period of time. Some people might refer to it as punctuated equilibria, um, where you've got a, a period of stasis and then you've got a period of like a lot of expansion. What that is based on, whether or not that's like mutation rates or demographics, it's very hard to say. There's a lot of different theories on that. Interesting stuff nonetheless. So the ecological factors behind this radiation of species is is, is fairly poorly understood. Um, they have a number of uh, trophic and habitat specializations which might provoke coexistence and might even uh, uh, produce some reproductive isolation. 
um, over time, which might lead to speciation. Yeah. So this is a, a pretty complicated sort of little evolutionary theory that they're they're working with um, to kind of explain the radiation. Yeah, yeah. But um, fascinating nonetheless. How has uh, basically the their question was how has dietary specialization influenced morphological and evolutionary diversica- diversification in these snakes? So what they did, they uh, had forty seven species. So that's about. Uh, three quarters of uh, all species of uh, the um, viviparous sea snakes. Uh, and they collected uh, three mitochondrial genes and uh, two nuclear genes um, for those playing at home, ND4, site B, 16S, uh, ribosomal, um, RAG1 and CMOS from uh, nuclear. Um, and they created uh, a bunch of phy- phylogenies, time-calibrated trees using Bayesian inference in the BEAST program, um, using a root node from a recent elapid study to kind of uh, um, yeah root that... Um, that date, um, the Monte Carlo market chain convergence, um, and estimated sample size were assessed in trace, uh, maximum credibility trees were created in tree annotator. Um, and they quantified, uh, the shape length and trophic diversity, which is basically, uh, the diets of the different snakes that they had in their study in the, uh, program R, a maximum credibility tree was compared with, uh, shape and length and diet associations. Uh, here's some words. Uh, they used a phylogenetic generalized least square Brownian motion model. Um, I don't know what that means. Um, Brownian motion. I know that's like, yeah, the random motion of like a, on the surface of a liquid. <laughs> but uh, So there's some fancy little programs that will look at your data and tell you what the best mathematical model is to use to explain your data. Right. And the generalized least squares is uh, obviously one of those methods, as is the linear um, linear method. Um, but uh, the Brownian motion, throwing that one in, kind of threw me a little bit. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I know Brownian <laughs> motion is kind of like the random random movement motion of like uh, if you, for example, if you put uh, what's the element that reacts with water? Sodium, sulfur, one of them. If you put some sodium on water, it kind of skits around on the surface. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the mo- the motion that it makes is almost completely random and that's a Brownian motion. So I think they're using that to throw a kind of a, a randomness modifier in there of some sort. Um, either way, they can uh, they compared the uh, phylomorpho space um, that they came out with that um, uh, to visualize the differences as well. Um, they also made some explicit uh, shape and size convergences. For example, they had uh, 10 burrowing eel specialists and six burrowing goby specialists in the study. Um, and uh, they compared the number of times, uh, they had a couple of different methods here, they compared the number of times a lineage converges on a morphospace region, um, and they also compared the area of a morphospace observed versus expected in the estimated ancestors of uh, different branches. Now, to test if uh, burrowing uh, prey leads to a morphological evolution, uh, an increase in morphological evolution rate, um, they used a maximum likelihood model with a single rate model versus differing rates in burrowing branches. <sighs> um, now, results discussion. Um, it seems that um, dietary and trophic specialization does seem to have a bit of an influence on morpho- morphology, predominantly driven by convergent evolution in the microcephalic burrowing eel specialists. Um, you, uh, they're not all um, eel specialists, so are they the microcephalics? Or, or are all of them eel specialists? Or are there fish egg specialists in the microcephalic snakes as well? I know that's a weird question. Yeah, so I think I had a um, McDowell. I think I had a McDowell's sea snake, which has a tiny little head, Hydrophus McDowell. I throw up some fish eggs okay. in a container one day. So um, whilst a lot of the, the microcephalic snakes, the ones with tiny little heads, 
do have that tiny head so they can fit down burrows and often specialize on eels, yeah, I had this snake throw up some fish eggs. Mm, interesting. Well, there was definitely a, a, a solid correlation between the ad- adaptations in the turtle-headed sea snake and, and egg eating as well. Um, hmm, I wanna, uh, do you know how closely that is, uh, I guess, morphologically to the uh, burrowing eel specialists? Or is it more of a... The turtle-headed sea snake? Yeah, or is it more of a burrowing goby specialist? I probably couldn't. It's, it's... Is it own kettle of fish? It actually eats a lot of damselfish eggs. Ooh. So... Yeah, like you can see the damselfish getting really angry and gobies getting really <laughs> angry at turtle-headed sea snakes. Um, they know they're a predator. Um, like it's kind of interesting with um, – so there's two major groups of sea snakes. There's like – there's the Apisurus and Mitocephalus group which has that turtle-headed sea snake and the things that are a bit more like those big olive sea snakes big that we all know. Um, they – Australia is a global hotspot in terms of biodiversity for those species. And then you've got the hydrophus lineage, which is that one that has just exploded. There's, you know, there's something like, you know, there's more than 47 species in that group. So they've just exploded. And, and that they includes have, the yellow belly. Yeah, yeah, it does. And um, I think there was even a hypothesis that there's something in the DNA of those hydrophus sea snakes, something really flexible about their genome that allows them to kind of not just, you know, rapidly evolve into a new specialist species, but there's something like that allows them to diversify rapidly as well. Yeah, like, maybe maybe less developmental constraints, maybe a greater uh, ability for the genome to vary or maybe yeah. more developmental plasticity, yeah, maybe still, more inherent mutation rate, who knows? Yeah, it's still a bit of a mystery. Um, but yeah, I guess it does make sense that even though, you know, you and a particular another sea snake might not be, you know, sister species, um, in the, in the genetic species tree, but because you're both hunting exactly the same way on, you know, the same prey, there's certain things that are really advantageous and the, the snakes that have that, that morphological trait, maybe that tiny pokey head and that little beak that they can, you know, snatch onto an eel with. Um, maybe it's those snakes that do better. They have more babies. They're more likely to survive because they've got that physical trait that makes them better hunters. Yeah, right. And so that's how you kind of get that convergent evolution where two things are are not necessarily very close in the gen- the genetic family tree, but they turn out looking the same. Yeah, right. And there might be kind of some developmental constraints kind of pushing towards that kind of thing as well from the evo evolutionary developmental perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, look, either way, um, size and shape uh, correlated with proportion of burrowing prey. So burrowing eel specialists con- uh, convergently apparently uh, went uh, towards the microcephalic morphotype with uh, reduced relative forebody girth and intermediate body length. Yeah. So that means like tiny little head, thin little neck and really big butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like me. Um, so um, they had also faster rates of size and shape evolution than the others did. Um, and burrowing goby specialists generally short-bodied with small heads and uh, no evidence of convergent evolution. Very interesting. Um, I guess future studies uh, were uh, suggested to uh, examine the genetic and, uh, as we mentioned, there we go, developmental mechanisms underlying the body shapes and changes and, uh, and their role in speciation. Fascinating stuff. Um, Yeah, final thoughts? Well, I was lucky enough to dive Yongala shipwreck recently and I got to see the horned sea snake, Hydrophus parani. They're quite a large snake, like about a metre and a half long. They have a fairly small head and a big butt. 
but they look like little dragons. So they've got these really ornate scales, these spiky little dragon scales above their eyes. Wow. And I forget the name horned sea snake from. And they sit with their face at the top of Gobi burrows. <gasps> and there's this really cool thing about sea snakes. They have um, little bumps on their scales called scale sensilae. And Jenna Crow Riddell thinks that they use those sensile to detect vibrations in the water. Wow. And so... Are, are they just touch sensitive or like electrosensitive the same way? Like a... Well, well, that's like, I think we don't know. Wow. And so I'm pretty sure Jenna will be looking at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like you can't sneak up on a sea snake. So that's why <laughs> like I would be swimming along and, you know, like... 10 metres from a sea snake and I'll see it sleeping under a coral edge and I'll try and swim up to catch it. And then before I even get to it, they've popped their head out and they're looking at me. And I always wondered why. And then when Jenna's study came out, I was like, Oh, they can feel my they can you. feel yeah. my vibrations yeah. or yeah or it's electrosensory and so I have a theory about these horned sea snakes sitting with their little heads at the front of burrows. I wonder if those horns are just like a giant radar an dish, antenna. a giant radar dish of scale sensile like detecting goby movement. Wow, something wow. something for someone to look at one day. Yeah, definitely. I can't wait to see. Um, well, first of all, the first thing I'm going to do is go look up um, pictures of that that snakes. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eyelids. Um, all right, we've got one more here um, and we're going to fly through it. We've got uh, Sutrachrome, uh, Shanlome and Sumontha from 2018. Identification of sea snake meat adulteration in meat products using PCR RFLP of mitochondrial DNA. This is in Food Science and Human Wellness, wellness uh, number seven, uh, issue seven, number two. Interesting. So globally, um, uh, there's a, a large number of uh, at-risk sea snakes. Um, 9% are threatened. 6% are near threatened, 34 are data deficient. Yep, and data deficient species, once assessed, are more likely to have elevated extinction risk. Wow. So yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. We're worried about yeah, those ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we mentioned, Southeast Asia is the main trade region um, and one of the world's largest venomous snake and marine reptile harvests, unfortunately with a fairly small amount of reporting. Um, is largely uh, the squid uh, and prawn uh, fisheries and trawlers um, from Malaysia to Thailand um, with the annual Gulf of Thailand total of uh, 80 tons. Uh, that's about 225,000 snakes or more. Um, now, a lot of the meat uh, from these is uh, you know, uh, being passed off in a bit of an unregulated way into fish and pork bowls. Um, to reduce uh, production cost of fish and pork balls because um, if you can get a bunch of uh, cheap illegally caught sea snake and put it into your meat product you can uh, you can you know reduce production costs pretty and, much and the thing is it's not even illegal it's just totally unregulated they're caught as a byproduct of squid fisheries when they turn the lights on the sea snakes come in too oh, of course yeah yeah and but it is unethical because a lot of people die handling those sea snakes and getting them to fish market because they're not given protective equipment like we would demand you know these are really poor people handling sea snakes with no shoes and no gloves and they get bitten yeah and then they get offered often fake rhino horn that they pay huge amounts of money for to fix their sea snake bite. Which is not going to do it. It doesn't. But um, And then potentially they think they're cursed if they died, even though it was just that the sea snake didn't put venom in. Which, um, you know, first of all, it definitely doesn't increase uh, people's, um, I guess, uh, 
ethical opinion of snakes, I guess, moral opinion of snakes. But um, Yeah, and, and what little data we do have on those fisheries, um, particularly in Thailand, shows that the sea snakes are crashing fast, yeah. like by 30 or 40% in just eight years. So not only is there that conservation risk from over-harvest and illegal and unregulated trade, there's also a con- consumer risk with um, you know, species fraud and unadulterated unadul- uh, uh, meat products um, that you're paying for. And some um, sea-, sea snakes have poisonous skin as well. Yeah, right. Interesting. Well, um, the authors here um, developed a PCR RFLP technique um, uh, producing a species-specific DNA ID um, marker from blood, shed skin, raw cook, uh, and cooked meat and admixtures of Thai sea snakes as well as meat, um, pork, and I believe beef. Um, to do this, they got 43 blood and shed samples from six sea snake species, Hydrophus cyanocinctus, <laughs> Hydrophus carulescens, uh, uh, Hydrophus obscurus, uh, Hydrophus plitter, yes, yes. And Hydrophus <laughs> schistos. Yeah, Hydrophus schistosa. Uh, some of these have been changed since uh, I did this sheet. And Hydrophus <laughs> curtis. And uh, oh, that's uh, not a lepemus anymore. Yeah, it's uh-huh. Hydrophus curtis now. Um, and uh, two sea crate, uh, two sea crates uh, of the genus Lotocotta. Um, we didn't put the species name there because I'll just get it wrong. <laughs> uh, vets were used for postmortem meat uh, samples uh, in uh, collected in small pieces, um, and they were boiled, autoclaved, made into oven patties, uh, pan fried in vegetable oil, or uh, cooked in. Uh, uh, fish and pork admixtures uh, ranging from 10 to 50% um, sea snake um, versus the other meat sample, of course. Uh, samples were uh, processed, uh, meats were minced, and admixtures were blended uh, for genomic uh, DNA extraction using standard methods, uh, I believe here, and RBC Bioscience DNA Extraction Kit. Um, they ran uh, PCR primers for cytochrome B, um, and later on uh, the 12S and 16S ribosomal genes, we'll get into that in a little bit, designed from NCBI. Um, and they... Uh, the product was uh, electrophoresed on a gel, so basic gel electrophoresis. Uh, this was excised, extracted, um, and cleaned with a gel PCR DNA fragment extraction kit, again from RBC Bioscience, and this was sequenced uh, by one base sequencing in Malaysia. So basically, um, with that um, DNA sequence, they ran an electronic RFLP. That's a restriction fragment length polymorphism. Uh, uh, in web cutter 2.0. Uh, it's basically using an enzyme, a restriction enzyme, which cuts at a certain specific DNA sequence. They used several. And uh, the idea is, uh, you know, if you have two species and one of them has a mutation at that cut site, it won't cut. So you'll get a different appearance in, in where the enzyme does cut and doesn't. And you can take a sample um, and it migrates through the gel at a different rate based on its size. So the full size fragment will migrate less. If it does cut, you'll get two smaller fragments a little bit further down. Um, and again, you can use, uh, you can, I guess, multiplex up the number of markers if you're not getting uh, enough species specificity. And it seems that they did not need too much. Using uh, the enzymes ALU1 and HINF1, um, they uh, found uh, differing restriction uh, digestion patterns in species um, using uh, basically a 15 micro microliter PCR product digested with those enzymes. Uh, the products were electrophoresced on a two percent um agarose gel with ethidium bromide basic lab work um interesting um the cytochrome b uh by itself um was uh could reduce uh species specific restriction patterns with enzymes alu1 and hinf1 um except for a couple of species for which they needed to add um those other ribosomal genes that we mentioned 12s and 16s uh, interesting because this is a, a pretty basic lab work method now they've gone yeah, ahead and done the sequencing in, like 
um, shark forensic, like yeah. figuring out, you know, who's selling illegal shark meat or figuring out where shark meat has come from. Yeah, RFLPs like this have been used for quite a while. but I, they, I it's, guess it's one of the, the earlier forms that we use to kind of look at um, how closely related populations are to figure out if they were having babies together or if they were totally self-replenishing, not having babies together and therefore need to be managed separately. Yeah. But you can also use it in forensics um, at a more of a species level rather than a population level. And it's interesting that you can, you know, you can just use those enzymes and from there infer whether or not there is a mutation in the uh, enzyme cut site and and from there kind of go on and say that, hey, there is a little bit of variation here. There is, uh, and obviously... It's like creating a, a kind of a, a DNA barcode that matches to a particular species and you, you do this, you know, complicated series of methods chop up the dna oh yeah <laughs> and make a barcode <laughs> yeah pretty much come up with a with a barcode there by the end of it um yeah fascinating um and obviously this is something that doesn't require sequencing uh, you can pretty much just run it out on a gel once you once you have your pcr product so um uh, yeah quite simple rapid reliable straightforward but um a lot, a lot of work to develop it, but once you've got it, it's beautiful because you don't have to pay those really expensive sequencing costs. You can just run your DNA on a gel and it makes fluorescent bands and those bands form your barcode and you compare barcodes between species and figure out who's who. Yeah, I guess the only um, difficulty they ran into was when they kind of got up into the admixture percentages where it's like 50% snake and 50% fish. Now your um, your PCRs probably aren't going to be running as well and quite as efficiently. Well, and you're also, you might actually be cutting up fish DNA yeah, as well as yeah, snake yeah. DNA. Yeah, Because yeah. the, the enzyme just cuts DNA. It doesn't know that it can only cut sea yeah, snake DNA. Absolutely. Um, well, straight from the paper just reading here, um, I've got a little bit of a quote. This is a preliminary effort in sea snakes to generate markers uh, considering funds and high throughput equipment in the lab are not always available. Hopefully this technique will not only improve sea snake species ID, but also strengthen the law enforcement for over-harvesting. Um, so yeah, um, uh, great uh, applicable, uh, uh, you know, fantastic way to use um, basic gel PCR. Yeah, yeah. So um, like we're starting to see um, some great work coming out on harvesting of sea snakes. So I think um, Zoltan Takax and Aaron Lobo are very active in this space and also the Dashkin Seas Foundation and, you know, um, where volunteers are walking the beaches and having a look at what sea snakes are coming out of fishermen's nets and um, in places where they do then take those sea snakes to market, um, we can actually start to match up what people are seeing on the ground when they're looking at sea snakes in the fisheries versus what's happening in the market and, and how the meat's being used because sea snakes are a really valuable predator in an ecosystem. They're not – that when you take them out, things start to go sideways in an ecosystem. So to have this tragedy where they're being used as a low-value product to kind of, you know, push up the meat content of fish balls in the way that you might push up the sugar content of chocolate. It's just not on. They're too special for that. So, you know, we can start to evaluate how many are being taken, how they're being traded and, you know, start doing those big triple bottom line projects where you work with developing communities to um, increase education, awareness, economic opportunities, you know, upskill them in business, let them be their own middleman instead of um, getting very, very little value. Yeah, and through that process, their ecological knowledge grows as well rather yeah. than trying to, you know, shove it down their throat. And you increase 
you know, things like their education and health services so that they can elevate themselves out of poverty. They don't have to try and use sea snake bycatch and sell it at a ridiculously <laughs> low value to do that. Yeah, yeah. Sea, sea snake bycatch that there are also kind of not, um, you know, well, they're putting into fish and pork balls. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. prob- prob- probably more ethical ways to make you make your living as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, guys, I think that's pretty much where we're going to have to wrap it up for today. Um, that is the end of new research. And uh, I think we're pretty much there. Blanche, thank you so much for joining us. How was your Negroni? How was your cake? It was the cake. Everything amazing. <laughs> Everything amazing. Everything, they both go, to, go together very well. I think. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today. Uh, it was such a pleasure having you here. Um, guys, you can follow Blanche at CSnakeBlanche on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, and again, uh, check out JCU on Twitter at JCU. Ooh. You. And the Australian Sea Snakes Facebook page and Sea Snakes Global Sea Snakes page. If you want to um, get your sea snakes identified, if you want to flag a snake that might need to be rescued, or if you just want to learn more about sea snakes. Perfect. Australian Sea Snakes and Sea Snakes Global, both on Facebook. Check them out uh, as soon as possible. And as well, uh, don't forget to check out the Deadly Science Getaway on Twitter at Deadly underscore Science, on Facebook at Deadly Science, and hashtag Deadly Science Getaway just in general. Uh, guys, that's uh, that's us. Um, we're going to finish off our cake and our Negronis, um, and uh, we shall see you next time. Cheers, y'all. <laughs>